0: Good morning and happy Easter. It is great to be with you today. Uh, My name is Tim Clemens and uh, privileged to jump into that passage with you. During the week, uh, I was reading an article and it opened with these words. It says, I sat in my office a day or two ago talking to a man about Easter and he said, I just don't believe a word of it. It was all hallucination, imagination, or whatever you like to call it, there is no proof whatever. It was just wishful thinking on the part of the disciples. Now, I suspect that that is probably a fairly common attitude among secular people today. Uh, It could be that you're here and you're a believer and you still have, at least in the past, found yourself occasionally entertaining questions like that. Uh, To what extent is it the case that the resurrection of Jesus was just a case of wishful thinking on the part of the disciples? Right? Maybe they, after his death, were so distraught about the whole thing that they just concocted the story. Or maybe these were ancient people who were predisposed to believe in a resurrection, and so when one person thought they saw it, the others sort of all just jumped on board, they were desperate for it to happen. Or maybe it was a a big game of whispers, and so you know, one person tells another person who tells another person, somewhere along the line, it gets changed, the story gets changed, and we believe in a resurrection. Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? It's an important question for us to consider, especially on a day like today. You see, there will certainly be some people who might say something to the effect of, look, it doesn't really matter if it happened or not. Uh, At the end of the day, if belief in a resurrection helps you and gives you hope, then that's really the most important thing. In fact, again, I I suspect this is a fairly common attitude among secular people. Uh, At least until recently, uh, Christianity was, I think, appreciated for, at the very least, its practical benefits. And so it tends to make you more loving and gives you hope in hard times. And so even if it's not true, it's at least useful. Now that might sound like a a nice sentiment and like someone is being polite and kind, but it's interesting how different it is to the sentiment of the Apostle Paul. Uh, I'll just read to you from something he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If it only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. Paul says, if it's not true, it's not useful either. So which is it? Is the message of Easter just useful, as some suggest, or is it both true and useful? Well, Uh, Those who claim it's only useful will tend to have a fairly pessimistic view of the universe. They may not exactly put it like this, uh, but in essence, they'll believe that uh, our universe, everything in it, is an accident. Uh, This life is all we have, and then after that, we face oblivion. And so really, what we need is something to distract us, something to help us enjoy the journey so we kind of don't really think about the end too much. For some people, it might be religion. For other people, it might be the pursuit of you know education or success. For others, it will be family or relationships. For some, it will be adventure. Look, whatever it is floats your boat. as long as you don't disrupt and interfere with the freedoms of others, as long as it gives you hope, as long as it helps you, then you can believe what you like. But is that really all that Easter is about? I suspect you say no, but Gray City is all we're doing today distracting ourselves with false hopes while we hurtle towards oblivion? Well, the Bible says no. uh, Easter is not just useful, it's also true. And what's more, Easter is actually the guarantee that this world is not headed for oblivion, but for restoration and renewal. See, the message of Easter... It centers on the proclamation of both the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But that is a message which has huge implications. Uh, to begin with, the apostles said, because Jesus rose, we too will rise. In other words, his resurrection was the first fruits of a resurrection to come, the resurrection of all who trust in him. And likewise, they also said that the resurrection of Jesus was the guarantee that God is going to renew creation. In other words, we don't hope, our longing as a believer, if that's you, is not for some disembodied existence in the clouds in some spiritual netherland. No, it is for a new creation. Uh, The Christian ethicist Oliver O'Donovan puts it like this. He says, in proclaiming the resurrection of Christ, the apostles Proclaimed also the resurrection of mankind in Christ, and in proclaiming the resurrection of mankind, they proclaimed the renewal of all creation with Him. Now, if that's all too propositional, too cerebral. Uh, let me give you a word picture instead uh, by my very favorite C.S. Lewis. He says, In the Christian story, God descends to reascend, He comes down down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. One may think of a diver, first, reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair and then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to colour and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand at the dripping precious thing he went down to recover." The message of Easter is that the diver has recovered the precious. And so, Easter is a message of hope. And not just for Jesus, not just for the individual, but hope for our world. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a whole lot better than hurtling towards oblivion, doesn't it? The thing is, wanting something to be true and it actually being true are two different things. Just because you want it to be true doesn't mean it is. And so, what I want to try and do with you this morning is explore this idea of the hope of Easter a little further, uh, some of the ideas we've already explored using uh, the passage that was read out for us just a moment before. As we study it together, I want to help us see three things about the hope of Easter. The hope of Easter is certain, it's universal and it's also personal. It's certain, it's universal, and it's also personal. If you have a Bible, always worth having it open. First of all, the hope of Easter is certain. Can we have certainty that the resurrection of Jesus actually happened? Or was it just a case of wishful thinking on the part of the disciples? Well, that's, that's the question we want to try and interrogate a little more as we jump in together. As we do remember the context, the passage that we're about to read is set on the Sunday, so Jesus died on the Friday. It's probably mid-morning, so 9 o'clock, 9.30, frankly, about the time right now, and we meet two travellers on the road, it says. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, everything that had happened there is a reference to the events of the last couple days, and in particular, the events of that morning. And so you've got to understand what kind of a conversation, what kind of a discussion they're having as they walk along the road. This is not an excited conversation between two pumped-up believers. This is a confused conversation between two saddened skeptics. See, look. At what happens when a fellow traveler asks them what they're talking about. This is verse 17 a little later. He asks them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. They're so sad, they're so downcast that they literally stop in the middle of the road. This is not the kind of reaction you would expect from the disciples if they were anticipating a resurrection. They're devastated. What makes this uh, even more surprising is that they've actually already been told that morning that Jesus was alive and so for example have a listen to what happens to them earlier that morning they're telling the uh, fellow traveler on the road they, they tell him some of our women amazed us they went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Now, if the disciples are predisposed to believe in a resurrection, surely that's all they need. There's an empty tomb, there's an angelic vision, and there's a message saying he's alive. Surely that's enough. But take a look at how Luke describes the reaction of the disciples. Uh, This is from a little earlier, it's from verse 11. We didn't have it read out for us before, uh, but this is how the disciples respond to the message of the woman. It says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Uh, The Greek word behind nonsense means that which is totally devoid of anything worthwhile. Now, it's a bit harsh, but it helps communicate the point, doesn't it? When the disciples first heard the message of the resurrection, they thought it was a fairy tale. So take heart, by the way. Uh, If you're here and you think we're all just believing in a fairy tale, you're in good company. Because that's what the apostles thought too when they first heard it. but they didn't stay there. Something changed. Something brought them out of la-la land and gave them a conviction that this did, in fact, happen, that they could be certain about the resurrection. What was it? Well, truth is that there's probably two ways we can answer that question. The first is what should have convinced them, and the second is what did convince them. We're going to focus on the first, what should have convinced them. See, one of the quirks of this story is that as the two travelers are walking along the road Uh, Jesus actually comes up behind them. Now, I'm tempted to say he starts ghosting them, but that's a little maybe irreverent. And uh, Jesus, sorry, Paul, uh, what's his name? Luke goes out of his way to say he's not a ghost later on. But it is a fascinating moment. Verse 15 and 16, as they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, just as an aside, I don't think Jesus is in disguise, right? He's not wearing one of those novelty set of glasses with the nose and the mustache. (laughs) I would love that, wouldn't you? Right? they're suffering from spiritual blindness. Their eyes are kept from realizing who he is. And so Jesus kind of, he begins by playing dumb. He's like, so guys, what you talking about? And they say, are you the only one who doesn't know? And he's like, you might be surprised, but let's just play for a while. What things? The whole thing is is rather comical. But what's most fascinating is how Jesus responds after they tell him what happened that morning. Because they finish by saying, you know, our companions, they went, they confirmed that the tomb was empty, but they didn't see Jesus. Surely that's the moment to take the glasses off and say, surprise, here I am, it was me all along. But that's not what he does, is it? Verse 25 and 27, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. I love that. It's like, guys, it was there all along, this whole uh, crucifixion and resurrection thing is in your Bible, aren't you supposed to be the people of the book? Now, I, I just, as a side note, I think there is a beautiful, there's a beautiful irony to what Jesus says here, and I say that because uh, these days many secular people will criticise Christians for believing what the Scriptures teach even though they can't necessarily test it empirically. But here you have Jesus, the walking, talking, empirical proof of a resurrection, and he criticizes his disciples for not believing in the Scriptures. Uh, What's the point? Well, clearly Jesus believed that the Scriptures, and by Scriptures he meant Old Testament, were sufficient evidence to give you certainty about the resurrection. The Scriptures... Should have been enough, says Jesus. Now, now, don't get me wrong. He will go on to reveal himself to them. Uh, as I've sort of indicated already, he'll go on and eat some fish later on in this chapter, prove that he's not a ghost, say, put your finger in my hand, put your hand in my side. So he's not against empirical evidence. The thing is, the main reason he does that for the apostles is so that they could go out into the world as witnesses for people like us. See, they go on to write the New Testament, our scriptures. And so my point is this, if you want to have certainty about the resurrection, don't ask for a personal sighting of Jesus. If the Emmaus wrote disciples are anything to go by, not even that is sufficient for you to have faith, for you to have certainty. Instead, If you want certainty in the resurrection, open up the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, and see what they say. Now, again, I'm not suggesting you disregard the evidence. Our Christianity places a great level of importance on evidence, so read the history study the arguments for and against. But I'll say this, if you're going to read one thing, pick up a Bible. Why? Because the guy who was literally raised from the dead says that's the thing you need to have certainty. Number one, message of Easter is a message of certain hope. Secondly, it's a message of universal hope, universal hope. Uh, Up until recently, I think um, most of us, many uh, in the West at least, Uh, We're suspicious of totalizing, what I'm calling totalizing worldviews. And so uh, we're much more comfortable saying things like, look, I've got my truth, you've got your truth, Uh, even if it's not obvious how they can fit together, we can sort of both coexist and be okay. Uh, I've noticed my daughter uh, has picked up some of these ideas from her school recently, although she's been taught to use the language of culture. And so. Uh, For example, Tyler, he was talking about the Easter Bunny the other day. Uh, Tyler is three, my daughter Brooke is five. And then Brooke came back to Tyler and said, no, 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 Tyler, we don't believe in the Easter Bunny or Santa, we only believe in Jesus. And I thought, boom, that's my girl. But then she comes out with this, and I quote, but if we came from the North Pole, we would believe in Santa because he would be a part of our culture. And I thought, okay, we still have some work to do. (laughs) (laughs) But it illustrates the point, doesn't it? Uh, We live in a world that is increasingly trying to shrink the significance of Easter. Uh, Easter is not a message of hope for the world. It's not even a message of hope for a country. At best, it's a message of hope for your culture. And actually, preferably, maybe just your family, and even better, just you as an individual. It's useful. But it's not really universally true. Uh, What's fascinating about this is that it's the exact opposite of the move that Jesus was consistently trying to make in the Gospels. You see, time and time again, Jesus, as he comes to his disciples, he's trying to expand their understanding of why he came. And so he, he explains, I came not just to redeem a country or a culture, I came to redeem creation. And what's more, I came to redeem them from a threat far greater than just their political enemies. Now... As we see time and time again, uh, the disciples were a little slow on the uptake, so it takes a while for this to sink in. Even after his death and resurrection, they still don't get it. And so uh, you see a beautiful example of this in verse 20 and 21. It says, The chief priests and our rulers handed Jesus over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Two things I want you to notice. Who was Jesus supposed to redeem? Just Israel. And second of all, how was he supposed to do it? Well, it doesn't say, but the fact that he was crucified is kind of clear evidence in their minds that he failed. After all, a crucified Messiah was not a redeeming Messiah in their minds. Now, as we'll see, they get it wrong on both fronts, but I do think it's worth just pausing and asking, what exactly were they expecting Jesus to do for Israel and why? To answer that question, we have to go back to the Old Testament. See, the first time that God uses the language of redemption with his people is in Exodus chapter uh, 6, sorry, verse 5 and 6. By way of context, uh, this is 400 years. uh, The people of Israel have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, They've been subject to an evil dictator named Pharaoh, they have been kind of under his rule for all that time, and they're crying out to God. And then God raises up a man, Moses, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. He comes to him, and in uh, chapter 6, he says this. He says, "'I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians.'" I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. That's the first time God uses the language of redemption with his people. Now, what's he talking about there? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? He is going to liberate them from slavery to a foreign power and bring judgment on their oppressors. And so if that's what God did first time round with Egypt... It's only natural that the disciples would be expecting he's going to do something kind of similar next time around. And so the disciples of Jesus, right, in their day, most Jews kind of felt like slaves in their own country. By this stage, they've been ruled. Uh, Palestine has been occupied by the Romans for the last hundred years, and they're fed up with it. And then along comes this guy named Jesus, Uh, powerful in the eyes of God and men in word and deed before the people. They're expecting Jesus to be another Moses. And my goodness, if Moses brought plagues on the Egyptians, just you wait and see what Jesus is going to do to the Romans. The expectations were palpable. Five days before he dies, he enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. Everyone's praising him. Here is the king. The redemption of Israel must be on the cusp. We'd hoped he was the one to redeem Israel, they say. But then he went and got himself crucified. You can almost imagine Jesus rolling his eyes at that moment, can't you? You see, all all through his ministry, he's tried to make it clear to his disciples, guys, yes, I did come to do battle with another kingdom, with a rival kingdom, but it, it wasn't the kingdom of Rome. The kingdom I came to do battle against was far more subtle, far more sinister. And so just, for example, have a listen to how he responds when he's critiqued or accused of casting out demons through the power of Satan. In Luke 11, he says, Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. A house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? But if I drive out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice the emphasis. He doesn't talk about the triumph of Israel over Rome, but the triumph of God's kingdom over Satan's kingdom. All all through the Gospels, he's trying to make this clear to his disciples. Guys, humanity has a far greater threat than than you appreciate. You are in far greater danger. Your biggest issue is not the Romans. It's not your political enemies. It's your spiritual enemies. All right, Satan rules through sin and death, and he condemns all his captives to an eternity in hell. The Romans can never do anything like that. And what's more, humanity is utterly powerless to set ourselves free from Satan's kingdom. And therefore, without redemption, that is the fate of all of us. Grace City, you do need to understand your greatest enemy, your greatest threat... It's not sickness, it's not interest rates, it's not singleness, it's not loneliness, it's Satan, sin and death. But again and again, Jesus tells his disciples, that's why I've come. I have come to redeem. I've come to redeem you from a tyrant far worse than Caesar or Pharaoh. I've come to redeem you from Satan and all his powers. The surprise of the life of Jesus, though it shouldn't have been a surprise because it was in the scriptures and he told them multiple times, but the surprise was that he achieved that through his death. That was the means of his redemption. Now, I'd love to explore that with you, but Charles did it masterfully for us on Friday, so I'll give you a C.S. Lewis quote instead. <laughs> <laughs> it says, in a general way, it's not difficult to understand how the same thing, that is death, can be a masterstroke on the part of one combatant and also the very means whereby the superior combatant defeats him. Uh, every good general, every good chess player takes what is precisely the strong point of his opponent's plan and makes the pivot of his own plan. Take that castle of mine if you insist, not my original intention that you should, indeed I thought you would have made more sense, but take it by all means. For now move thus and thus and it's mate in three moves. Something like this must be supposed to have happened about death. Jesus tasted death on behalf of all others. He is the representative dyer of the universe. And for that very reason, the resurrection and the life. Let's come back to the disciples. They say, gosh, we really thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. But then he died. The irony of their comment is that Jesus' crucifixion wasn't the obstacle to the, res- the redemption of Israel. It was the very means by which he redeemed Israel. Actually, not just Israel. Because you know what? Uh, Luke, the same author of this gospel, writes the book of Acts. and the book of Acts, there's this fascinating little exchange where Jesus, he's been raised from the dead. He hasn't yet ascended into heaven. And have a look at what the disciples do. Then they gather around him and they ask him, Lord, are you at this time? going to restore the kingdom to Israel. It's like, guys, you're obsessed with Israel. What, what is going on? That uh, You can't get over the kingdom. But have a look at how Jesus responds. He said to them, look, it's not... Oops, sorry, can you take me back? We got a little trigger happy there. He said to them, it is not for you to take the times, sorry, to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now he dodges the question, but notice the redirect. He's like, guys, stop thinking about the kingdom of Israel and start thinking about the kingdom of God. That's the reason I'm going to send you out, not just to Jerusalem and Judea, but to Samaria and the ends of the earth. Why? People need to know I have just conquered and triumphed over Satan's kingdom and made it possible for them to enter God's kingdom, which will come one day. And so they need to know that before it's too late. See, this is why I call in this point, the hope of Easter is universal. It's universal because it's not just a message for a single culture, a country, but for all creation. The world needs to know. The king has triumphed. And God's king will soon return to establish his kingdom once and for all. And so the call on all people is to abandon their former master, their slave master, come out of the darkness, enter God's kingdom through faith in his son, and then wait with eager expectation for the coming kingdom and the renewal of all things. That is our hope. It's the universal hope. So far... We said the hope of Easter is certain because it's foretold in the scriptures. It's universal because it's a message for all creation. I want to suggest though by suggesting, uh, I want to finish by suggesting that the hope of Easter is also personal. That is, uh, the resurrection of Jesus makes it possible for each of us to encounter him in a personal way. See, when the two travelers reach Emmaus, uh, Jesus pretends to keep going. Uh, Now just to be clear, he's not being uh, deceptive, he's being polite, right? No one wants to be that guy who invites themselves over for dinner, right? And so he's just sort of hovering there, pretending, and they're like, oh, you should come and join us. He's like, thank you, that's so polite of you, I'd love to. And uh, so he goes in, and then we read this, verse 30 and 31. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. Now I know that raises some questions for you. Like what does it mean that he disappeared from their sight? Did he literally just vanish into thin air or did he excuse himself, go to the bathroom and just never come back? (laughs) They're like looking at their watches going, geez, this is a long time. Uh, Look, my hunch is it's the former, surprisingly. Uh, And... We don't have time to explore, you know, all the implications of that for our resurrection bodies. Instead, I just want you to notice notice why they recognize him. They recognize him because their eyes were open. In other words, God opened their eyes to see. They were healed from their spiritual blindness and they finally saw who Jesus was. Who was he? He's well, not just the promise of the scriptures. He's not just the hope of the world he's also something personal and what i want to suggest i want to show you two ways in which he was personal for them became personal for them and the reason i want to highlight these is because i think these are also a way in which jesus also can among others become personal for us because the message of easter it's not just about the scriptures not just about the world it's a message that touches each of us so how is it that the message of easter the hope of easter becomes personal well First of all, who's Jesus? Number one, he's the one who sets hearts aflame. He's the one who sets hearts aflame. Uh, look at what happens as soon as Jesus is taken from their presence. They say, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? It's not just a Bible study. Uh, back, it says back verse 27, Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Grace City, it was when they saw Jesus in the scriptures that their hearts burned. And I wanna suggest it's the same today. There are two ways that you can read the Old Testament. There's two ways you can read the Bible. It's a book about humanity and all that we need to do to get to God, or it's a book about Jesus and all he's done to bring us to God. I wanna suggest that when you read it the first way, your heart goes cold. When you read it the second way, your heart burns. Why? Because that's where you're encountering the risen Lord. I mean, forgive me for doing this for a moment. but doesn't your heart burn in like the last three minutes of every talk on the Old Testament that you ever hear from here? I mean, we all know where it's going. But doesn't your heart burn, mine does? When we had that video just earlier, if you were here in time, you know, Jesus is the true and greater, he's the true and greater Abraham, he's the true and greater Isaac, is the true and greater Jacob, is the true and better Job, is the true and better. Doesn't your heart burn? Uh, every week I have to preach, I'm praying, God, God, open my eyes to see Jesus in this text. Don't make it a lecture, make it a sermon. Make it personal, make it personal for me, make it personal for them. Would you set our hearts aflame? Would you help us worship in our seats? God, would you help us encounter your son through the scriptures? The hope of Easter is personal because Jesus is still the one who sets our hearts aflame today as we encounter him in his word. But second of all, it's personal because he's the one hosting the meal. He's the one hosting the meal. See, what... What are we to make of the fact that Jesus reveals himself to the disciples in the breaking of the bread? Is it just that you know they'd seen him do it a bunch of times and something about the way he broke it, they were like, oh, I recognize that. No, I think there's something more to it. Um, let me give you the reflection of one Bible commentator. Uh, this is uh, the reflection of John Nolan. He writes this. There is no sense in which Luke is claiming that Jesus celebrated a communion service with these disciples, right? That's not what he's saying that Jesus is doing. But he goes on. Rather, Luke wants to make the point that the Christians of his day were able to have the living Lord made known to them in their breaking of bread in a manner that was at least analogous to the experience of the Emmaus disciples. Now, we don't have a time to go into a full theology of the Lord's Supper, but I do think that's helpful. Why? Well, I mean, At the very least, it reminds us that Jesus is not a concept. Uh, Jesus is not a philosophy. Jesus is not a worldview. Jesus is not a religion. Jesus is a person and is alive still today. He was alive with the Emmaus disciples. He's alive with us today. And what's more, Jesus makes himself known to us in the Lord's Supper in a way that is at least analogous to the way he revealed himself to the disciples. Now, obviously, there are differences. He was with them in the flesh. He is with us by his spirit. But at both meals, I want to suggest uh, Jesus presides as host. He's the one who invites us. Come and eat. And therefore, as we take the Lord's Supper together now, we're going to do this in just a moment. I want to encourage all of us. In fact, my prayer, because I don't know that you can control this. My prayer is that we would all see with the eyes of faith that God would open our eyes and make Christ known to each of us personally. And so as I close, uh, let me read from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, He's coming back and he asks us to do this meal in remembrance of him. And so in a moment, uh, the band will play some music while